Good morning. It is a joy to be with you guys this morning as we close out our missions week. If you guys will turn to Acts chapter 13, we're going to be uh, in the middle way through the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 13 will be in verses 1 to 3. Luke writes, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for that which you've allowed us to be part of. And we thank you for the gospel that you've entrusted to us, the the reality that your son Jesus has died and resurrected, that in his death and resurrection, he's provided us the free gift of eternal life that we can receive simply by reception, by belief in, in that which you have done on our behalf. And Father, I pray this morning as we open your word, as we jump into the book of Acts, Father, I pray you allow us to see the deeper and, and the ongoing implications of what Jesus has done. Not just of what he has done, but what he's invited us to be a part of as his work continues through his church, his body. Father, I pray this morning as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would illuminate our minds. You would allow us to see. I pray that your word would open, that you would allow us to mine the riches of it this morning. Pray that our hearts would be responsive to you and to whatever your spirit would do and, and desire to do in our lives and where you would desire to lead us. Father, pray that your spirit would be here in such rich ways and that you'd speak through me as you desire and as you see fit. Pray that you'd move me out of the way and that your glory would be seen and established and that you would allow us to see more fully all that you've called us to be a part of, Lord. And Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think there are a few things that every single one of us has experienced in our childhood. There are a few things that every single one of us has walked through at some point or another. And I think all of us have been at a point in time where we were there in elementary school and our parents put food in front of us that we weren't necessarily excited by, right? Uh, Maybe your parents were not the best cooks in the world and maybe you did like I did at times where you rearranged the piles of food and hoping just to kind of stall a little bit, right? Hoping that eventually your parents would kind of get tired and beaten down by the waiting process that you're putting them through. And I think I'm not the only one as well that at some point in time heard his parents say to him in order to motivate him to eat all of his food, hey, there are starving kids in Ethiopia, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. At least for me, I feel like every single parent at some point in time has said to their kid who did not want to eat all their food, hey, there are starving kids in Ethiopia. You should eat all of your food. How ungrateful are you to realize when there are people who don't have it all that you have and you should be so thankful and you should eat all your food. Honestly, for me, I thought that was the craziest line of reasoning I had ever heard, all right? Obviously, I didn't really get to buy in it. It didn't really necessarily inspire me or motivate me. But I thought in terms of my eating situation and the reality of the plight of starvation in Africa, these scenarios could not be more unrelated, right? What in the world does my situation as an elementary school kid who didn't want to eat his mom's cooking at times have anything to do with the plight of starving kids in Ethiopia? They could not seem more disassociated from one another. In fact, I often thought, too, how absolutely condescending to those kids in Ethiopia to think that, what are we going to do, mail my leftovers to them, right? This just seemed preposterous, right? I thought, there's no way that as an elementary school kid that I could have any bearing or any impact to that giant problem that was going on in Africa. I don't know if you've ever thought through that or I often thought, man, it seems like every single parent has has been to some parent summit or got some instruction as they left the hospital because every single parent seems to have that line of reasoning for their kids. Obviously, it didn't really hit me. And as I was thinking about it even this week, I thought, though, there's really some great similarities between that situation and our response to it as we grew up. And I think for many of us, even in college, as we hear about the great task and the calling of the church to evangelize and bring the gospel to all the nations. I think as we think about our response to the reality of the plight of starving kids in Ethiopia when we were a little kid and the plight of those that may not know Jesus Christ and may spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ throughout the world, I think we respond in very similar ways. I think each of those seems of an issue and of a project and a problem of such a great magnitude and size that it's so difficult for us to get our arms around. In terms of the task of the church to, to evangelize the entirety of the nations, the idea that there has to be men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is such a massive task. How do I get my hands around that, right? How do I individually even impact that? And to think that I could have a, a role in that seems absolutely condescending and really uh, minimizes the giant task that is there. I often think, too, the consequences for failure in each of these tasks is absolutely tragic. Not just for starvation for kids in Ethiopia and in the greater part of Africa, but even larger, uh, if the church fails at the task that we've been given to bring the gospel to all nations, how absolutely tragic are the consequences? I think for me, though, the, the tragicness of failure 
And the massiveness of the enterprise for me always often brings me and causes me to step back and to shut down. And really, in a sense, in many ways, for me, makes it really hard to engage. And what I want to do this morning is we look at Acts at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of Acts chapter 13. I want to, in a sense, take this great task and calling of a church known as Global Missions. And I want to put, be able to put our hands around it and make it more manageable and, and, and allow it to be something that we can get a sense of how exactly we can step into and how we matter in this great task and calling of the church. That's where we're going to go this morning in Acts 11 and Acts 13, because particularly we're going to see, I think, really the ideal church. What we're going to see in Acts 11 is we're going to see one church, the church in Antioch, who's going to be really at the very front end of seeing the gospel go to the nations in the book of Acts. No church will be as significant to the gospel moving out as the church that was in Antioch. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see a great, really, in a sense, recipe for what does the church do and how does the church engage the great task of global missions? And honestly, I think that the example and the prototype of the church in Antioch comes at a really helpful time because I think there are so many churches today that will talk all about missions. And really what they mean is something very different than what we see that the church at Antioch will pursue. And really what I think Jesus has called his church is disciples and you and I too. I think there are many churches today, even those that are the most popular, those that are seeing that some of the greatest things happen that have missed the boat really on what missions looks like and how the church is to engage in it. So as we look at Acts 11 this morning, really what we're going to see is a church that is going to be at the very front end of the task. It's going to be a great prototype for us as we even think about the church that we're a part of, the church that we will one day be a part of even as we leave this place. I think the church of Antioch is the prototype. So look with me, if you will, Acts chapter 11. We're going to begin actually in verse 19. So flip back a little bit. Uh, And as we kind of jump in here, I'll tell you guys, I, I kind of want to ask two questions this morning. The first is very simple. First is this, if the church of Antioch is going to be the prototype and the model for church as they engage in missions, then why was the church of Antioch so influential? What was it about the church of Antioch that made them so impactful really to the gospel moving out through the book of Acts? What was so unique and what was so influential about the church in Antioch? It really begins in verse 19. Read with me if you will. Verse 19. Luke writes, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. And so really, as this passage opens in, in verse 19, you see that the persecution has broken out. He's going all the way back to the persecution that was about in regards to Stephen in Acts chapter 8. And what he's saying is the result of that persecution that was chapters ago is still moving the church and the people of God out further and further. You guys remember back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when Stephen himself was stoned, it said that the persecution that arose moved the apostles and the church from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria. And here in Acts 11, what we're going to begin to see is that the church will move not just from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, but that persecution that began in Acts 8 is going to continue to move the church further and further out, away from Jerusalem, away from Judea and Samaria, moving really to the ends of the earth. Really, if you were to look at the structure of the book of Acts, it really goes all the way back to what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, I want you to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so ultimately, as the book of Acts begins to open further and further up, what we're going to begin to see over and over again is that the church and the gospel is going to move further and further out and be scattered further and further more broadly. And really in Acts 13, we really see one of the most aggressive expansions as the church moves out of their midst and as they send really the first missionary journey. Acts 13 is all about missions. The book of Acts is all about the gospel going out, not just to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, but even to the ends of the earth. So persecution arises and it moves the apostles, not just to Judea and Samaria, but even to the ends of the earth. They begin to move out. It says into Phoenicia, to Cyrus, to these places that are both northern and western of Judea and Samaria. And so the men and women of God are moving further and further out. And I was thinking, actually, it's fascinating as you think about this. I think in many ways the church of God, the church of Antioch, catches up to what God was doing. I think what persecution did was it scattered the church of God in such a way that they were, in a sense, on the heels and trying to catch up to where God was going. Persecution is going to move them out just as he was wanting the church to do. And persecution ends up being part of the tool God uses to move them out. In fact, the early church father, Tertullian, said this about persecution. He says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So you look at the book of Acts, really, you're going to see martyr after martyr. You're going to see persecution after persecution. But it always ends up being the tool by which God uses to take the church and scatter them, move them more broadly. That difficulty really ends up falling exactly into the plan and the purposes of God. So here in Acts 11, the persecution that began in Acts 8 is going to move the church further and further out, just as God intended, so much so that the church of Antioch, in many ways, is just playing catch-up to where God is moving. God is moving out, and the church of Antioch is going to, in a sense, try to play catch-up to catch-up to where God is already going. In fact, we see this over and over again. It's not just that he scatters them because of persecution here in Acts 11, but he scatters the people of God even in judgment. 
to you guys all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel. All of humanity that had been told to fill and multiply and fill the earth, they all gather in one place to build a tower so they can make a name for themselves. And God comes down in judgment. And he confuses their language and he scatters them across the face of the earth. Whether it's through persecution or sometimes even through judgment, they become tools by which God uses to take his people and to scatter them so they can fulfill the task of global missions. These are just tools by which God is using. One of the things I love about this, as you look at Acts 11 particularly, is you're going to see that the church of Antioch is merely catching up to where God has already gone. Uh, on Wednesday night at one of the Go Missions breakouts, I heard a speaker make an excellent point, and I thought it was just fantastic, that I think many of us, as we think about missions, or we think about jumping on a plane, many of us think, hey, I'm going to take Jesus to the nations. I'm going to take Jesus to a place that he's never been known before. And so I'm going to, in a sense, it's almost like we pack him in a suitcase, check him, get there into a foreign country and a foreign people that are just staring at us, unpack Jesus and go, hey, here, right? And that's not at all what's happening in missions, right? When you arrive in a place in a foreign country on a foreign soil, you are not the first one there. You're merely catching up to where God has already begun to work and you're getting to reap the benefits and the fruit of that. As the church moves out and as they're scattered, they're merely catching up to where God has already been working. Which is why I think it's not coincidental that that in John chapter 4, Jesus will say, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Jesus has just taken his disciples out on an evangelistic training time. And he says, hey, here's what I want you guys to see. Look out on the people and realize that I have already been working in their hearts in such a way that they are ripe for the harvest. They're ready for you just to come and share and speak of me and see them respond in faith. And that's what we're going to see for the church of Antioch in a minute. They're going to take the gospel of Jesus out and people are going to respond in droves because God has so prepared the harvest. And as you and I think about the task and the calling of global missions, you and I are not at all stepping out in front of Jesus. We're merely playing catch up. He's already moving and trying to establish his glory throughout the entirety of the earth, throughout the entirety of the nations. And when you and I arrive and when we go at times, we're merely playing catch up to where he's already been and where he's already been preparing you to step into. Relationships that you'll have this chance to step into that he's already been cultivating, already preparing so that they're ready to hear the gospel. I think for many of us, as we think about missions, it's this idea that, hey, we're going to take Jesus somewhere that he's not. And the reality is when you arrive and you, you fulfill and you come behind and you follow behind where he calls you, many times we're arriving where he's already working. And the church of Antioch is going to be so influential because they're just playing catch up with where God already is and how he's already moving. God is going to use persecution. He's going to use judgment to take his people and to scatter them out. I think for so many of us, I think you and I need to realize and hear in a fresh way that really what global missions is, is a call for the church to scatter themselves and to go, to go. In many ways, that's why uh, Jesus will say the harvest is plentiful. It's ready. It's abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And I'll tell you guys, as I was a student in your seats and I hear a verse like this, it it often felt to me like all about guilt. (laughs) There's a giant need out there. You need to go because if you don't go, how does God fill that need? That's not at all what I think we see in Acts 11. God is working and he will move some to go. And as to whether you go or not, we'll talk about the options as to how you and I participate. But ultimately, God is working in such a way that the church of Antioch will come behind it. And what I love about what we're going to see really in terms of the church of Antioch is that for many, I think as we think about missions, many of us have this innate, at least I did, wall that goes up and goes, I don't think so. I ain't going to a foreign country. I'm not going to go to a place that's a completely different culture. Some of us are are adventure thrill seekers. We're like, I'm in, right? (laughs) Some of us are like, I don't think so, all right? But what I love that you see here in the book of Acts particularly is that the task of global missions is not one that you and I hold individually. The task of global missions, taking the gospel so that men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation can hear it is the task of the church at large. It is not your individual task that you have to carry out or respond to and hold yourself but it is the task for the church at large. So the question becomes really then, how do we as a church at large fulfill that task together? All right. Not just say, it's all about me and what am I going to do? But how do we fall into the community of the church of the people of God in order to fulfill this task that he has given to the church at large? It is not your task as an individual, but it is our task. And what I love of what you're going to see here in Acts 11 is you're going to get the perfect recipe for what the prototypical church that's going to have the most profound impact on the nations looks like. The church in Antioch is going to be the prototype. They're going to be the perfect recipe that you and I can find and look for in terms of the kind of church that will have a giant impact on the nations. I mean, anyways, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a restaurant where you ate something as an entree, or at least for me often as a dessert, that just about took your knees out, right? Uh, it just made your knees just buckle. You thought, man, that is just heavenly. Whatever has hit my mouth, and I need to know more about it, right? It is so good. 
that a bulldog would break his chain to get this thing. A rich woman would beg. It is that good, all right? I don't know if you've ever been in that spot and you thought to yourself, you know what I really need to do is I need to ask the waitress for the recipe because I need this thing in my home or wherever I go at any point in time because it is that good. I don't know if you've ever been in that place and, and then had the waitress come back and go, I'm sorry, but that's actually copyrighted intellectual property of the restaurant. We can't share that with you. <laughs> the only time you're ever going to get that is if you come here to this one place. It's a secret. It's a recipe. We guard it with all that we have. The thing I love about the church in, in Antioch that's going to be the perfect recipe for the kind of church that hits the nations as large as possible is that the components of their success and why they were so influential are no secret whatsoever. Really, Luke is going to give us four key elements of the things that this church was doing that made them so impactful, not just in their local context, but in an international context. The things that they were doing locally would transfer and spill over to the nations at large so that this local church would have an absolutely giant international impact. The church is going to do four primary things that really kind of give us, in a sense, a recipe of what they were and what they were doing. The first of the church is this. They were a church that evangelized the lost. Simply put, they were a church that was sharing their faith in the midst of their current local context. Look at verses 20 to 21. Luke tells us, But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. These guys take the gospel out. They simply preach Jesus Christ, and people are responding in droves. These men and women have been scattered, and then they go out, and they catch up to where God is already working. And as they share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, men and women say, I need a Savior. And they're ready to respond, and responding in droves. And I think it's absolutely significant because I think a church that will not share the gospel with the people that are in their neighborhoods who they know is a church that will not share the gospel in the nations of people they don't know. If the church will not move with compassion and with a sense of mercy to the, to the neighborhoods that they're a part of, with those that they know that are right there within a one-mile square radius, then it is not a church that's going to move to the nations with compassion and with any kind of strategy. The first thing that the church of Antioch does that really is the first key ingredient of a kind of church that will have a profound local and international impact is that there were those that had shared the gospel with the lost. Those that did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they came and said, hey, here is who Jesus is. Here is what he's done, and here is how it changes your life. I think when we and I think of evangelism, I'll tell you, I think evangelism often is a very intimidating thing. What do I say to people? What is it that I need to communicate as to what the gospel is? What, would people, what happens when people reject me? How do they respond to me? And we have all kinds of fears and all kinds of elements in which we're intimidated by it. But one of the things I love about missions in this I think though a church who does not evangelize those that are right there in their midst, they will not evangelize those that are worlds apart. But I'll tell you for an individual, it works different. I'll tell you for myself as a student in your seats years ago, it was an opportunity to be overseas for a five-week trip that really trained me to share my faith and brought me back to the States with a greater motivation and greater compassion to share my faith right in the very context that I was already living in. A church that does not share in the current context will not share in an international context. But for an individual, that kind of experience is absolutely transforming and shaping for you to figure out how to share your faith. And it changes you as you look at the loss and as you engage those that may not know Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a simple question. This is, do you, can you share your faith? Do you know how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? The very good news that brought you into a relationship with Jesus. Do you know what to say? And if you don't, let me say, let me invite you. Come with us this summer. If you come with us this summer, it's going to be an awesome opportunity to train you to share your faith. And even more so, let me say this. One of the things I love about the Church of Antioch is not just that they're going to share their faith of lost, but they're going to go a step further. They're going to actually begin to establish those who came and responded to the gospel. Notice what the church does in verses uh, 22 to 24. He goes on and says, The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So the church of Jerusalem hears all that the church of Antioch is doing, and so they dispatch someone to kind of go check out what's going on, almost kind of like a big brother. <laughs> hey, there's a lot of stuff going on. Let me, let me make sure that everything that's going on is good. And so this guy Barnabas comes, and essentially he's trying to inspect what's going on. And one of the things I love about verses 22 to 24 is by the end of it, you, what you notice is Barnabas's arrival has not at all stopped the gospel from going out and men and women to come to faith. Church of Antioch has continued on, but what, what does Barnabas do exactly? He doesn't just witness what they have been doing and the past work of God, but he steps in in a much needed way. 
His name means son of encouragement. So he was one who was an encourager. Furthermore, he's going to plead and exhort them in all solemn attitude to press on and continue in loyalty and faith to Jesus. This was a church that didn't just share their faith, but they were a church that as men and women came to faith, they established them in their faith. Those who came into this very brand new relationship with Jesus Christ that had no idea what was asked of them or how they walk with Jesus, they say, hey, let us come and let us encourage you as to the decision you make, but let us also help form you and establish you in this new faith, this new relationship. That was what the church of Antioch did. That's what Barnabas did. He was a cheerleader and he was an encourager. I want to ask you this morning, if one of your friends said, hey, tell me more about this Jesus guy and why you love him, would you know what to say? Would you know what to share with them? And if you did share with them and they said, hey, I would love to have a relationship with that Jesus and they come to Christ and they believed in him for the first time and they entered a relationship with him, would you know what to do with that individual next? Or would you just kind of punt him to the church and say, hey, hey, kind of get involved. They'll figure it out for you. If a person came to Christ with you in a conversation tomorrow, what would you do the next week? What would be the very next conversation you'd have with him? What is the very next few things that are the most essential and the most important for them to know? That's something that you need to know. That's part of what you need to continue to grow in as you continue to share your faith and help others to continue to grow and walk with Jesus. The church in Antioch not only shared their faith, but they knew exactly what to do with those who came to Christ and they knew how to establish them in their faith to give them not just a good start, but that they could continue on in this newfound relationship they were excited about. Think about the, the book of Acts that as these new individuals came to Jesus Christ, they would immediately come under persecution. And so someone had to be there to encourage them and say, hey, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. And here's how you walk with Jesus. Here's what it looks like. I was thinking even this week for us, a lot of you guys know, Marcy and I have a six-month-old baby boy named Colt. And so he is absolutely dependent on us, all right? (laughs) There's nothing that little dude can't do on his own, all right? I mean, that dude just, everything it is from eating to sleeping to diapers to clothes, he's absolutely and wholly dependent on us, all right? We gave him new life. But if we just tanked and walked away, he's dead there's no potential for survival apart from our willingness to care for him and to raise him and to establish him in his new life, right? And for churches, really, you have those who will come to Christ and they have to help people in that infancy moment as they come into a relationship for, with Jesus for the first time. But it's not just in that infancy moment. The church is supposed to continue on. And so think of a parent who has been there in the early infancy months of a child, helping them learn to eat, helping them learn to, or helping change their diapers, helping change their clothes, helping them learn to sleep. But what if the parent never continued past that? All right, this is going to be an absolute absurd illustration, but imagine if you were here this day as a student and imagine if your parents had to move to college with you because you didn't know how to feed yourself. All right, seriously, imagine your parents living with you and having to continue to spoon feed you because you couldn't cut your food and know how to eat. Let me take it one more step, absolutely absurd. Imagine you're still in a diaper, all right? I mean, they're changing your clothes, all right? You've not moved past that, all right? And you laugh because that is absolutely absurd and a little weird to think about, right? But spiritually speaking, I think there are many churches that do that, right? Maybe they're great at bringing a person and sharing the gospel so they can come to Christ, but they have no idea how to establish them in their faith, and they then have no idea how to help them continue to grow in their faith so they become independent, functional individuals. Part of what your parents hope as you guys arrived in college is that you guys were independent, functional individuals, right? You guys still have questions, you still call home with all kinds of stuff that comes up, but by and large, you can feed yourself, you know how to live on your own, you know how to help yourself out, you can solve your own problems. You're not absolutely dependent on them except for finances, right? (laughs) By and large, right? But by and large, you're an independent, functioning individual. What the church in Antioch is going to do is not just evangelize the lost, not just establish believers, but the next thing they're going to do is they're also going to be able to equip disciple makers, all right? What the church in Antioch will do is not just give people a great start and say, hey, welcome to this new relationship with Jesus, but they will help establish them in their faith and they'll help raise them in their faith, okay? To the point where these believers knew how to walk with Jesus on their own, not just that they were independent, functioning believers, but then they were also trained to begin to turn around and help others move through that same process that they had already gone through. And as you guys mature, the part of the goal, part of the process that the Lord has for you guys is not just that you would enter into faith. Maybe today that's where you enter. Maybe you enter in for the first time today. This thing called a relationship with Jesus. For some of you guys, you come to college and this thing was brand new. And so you got established in your faith. And the goal really the Lord has for you guys as you continue to walk through college is that you would grow in your faith to such an extent that you'd begin to be able to turn around to the younger generation and begin to pull them up. Not just that you would be an independent functioning individual, but that you could begin to turn and lift and help some and serve and bend low to help someone else begin to grow in their faith. Maybe a freshman, maybe someone who's younger, maybe a high school student. 
maybe a, a kid in our children's ministry, that that's part of what you're doing as you grow in your faith with Jesus Christ is that you're turning around to a younger generation and begin to pulling them up. So that's exactly what the church of Antioch is going to do. Notice uh, really back in verse 25, notice what happens next. People are coming to Christ in droves. Uh, Barnabas is there. He's trying to help out. Begins, he gets quickly overwhelmed. And notice verse 25. And so he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. He's like, come, I need some help. Verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Man, what's going on in Antioch is absolutely amazing through the book of Acts. Men and women coming to Christ and in droves. Men and women who are being established in their faith. Men and women who are being equipped and raised up in their faith. Barnabas says, Saul, hey, I need some help. And so Saul and Barnabas get at the work of God for about a year, teaching this church, raising this church up, not just having them established, but raising them up so they can begin to help others who are coming into the faith for the first time. Let me ask you a question. If you had a friend this morning who wanted to know Jesus about Jesus Christ, would you know what to share? And if they came to Christ this week, would you know what to spend and do with them for the next week? What would be the first things you want them to know? What would be the first things you would help them get established in their faith? Let me ask you a third question. If you had a year with them, what would you do next? What would be the most important things to build into their life for the next year? What Paul and Barnabas were doing for the church in Antioch and what our hope is for you guys as we have time with you guys through your college experience is that we can help you ground you in your faith and help raise you to be disciple makers. That you could look at a next generation and say, hey, I have a year with this individual. What would I impart to them? What are the things I would most necessarily want to teach them? How can I raise them in their faith? These are the things that were going on in the church in Antioch. But really what I think gets significant is where the story turns next. There are a lot of churches that do those three things. That share their faith in their local context. That establish believers in their local context. And that raise those believers up in their local context. But what's going to set apart the church in Antioch is what comes next in verses 27 to 30. Notice this. Luke goes on, he says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. What really sets apart the church in Antioch? What really allows this church to have an international impact unlike any other church to this point and unlike any other church after this point? This was a church that was willing not just to evangelize the lost, establish believers, and equip disciple makers, but fourthly and lastly, they were a church that was willing to extend their resources. This was a church that was willing to extend their resources, and so their eyes were up and they were looking at the world and they saw and they heard of a famine that was going to hit all over the world or literally just within the Roman Empire most likely. And so to those that were in the wake of that struggle, they say, hey, let us help. Let us extend our resources beyond our local context to those that we may not know and we may never see. This is, I think, really what set up the church in Antioch is so influential is because their eyes were up and they were looking at the nations. They were looking at the world beyond their borders, beyond their culture, and they said, hey, I see a need. Let us move towards it. I think this is truly what set apart the church of Antioch at this point in time. Because remember, even the church in Jerusalem, if you guys remember from the stories in Acts 2 and Acts 4, they were a church that was incredibly generous. It was almost like a social communism that was going on in the church in Jerusalem, right? They were just sharing stuff with one another. They didn't care what was theirs, what wasn't theirs. They were just kind of living together, singing, holding hands, singing Kumbaya, all right? Incredible generosity. But the church in Antioch goes way above and beyond them because they're going to share not just in their local context with those that they know that can one day repay them. But the church in Antioch is going to go one step further and share with those that they don't know and that may never repay them. All right? They're going to move beyond their walls, beyond their culture and their city and move outward. Their eyes were up and they were responsive to the charge and the need that was there and they, and they respond to it. This is what sets the church of Antioch apart. They took their money that was theirs and they moved out towards the nations with it. Even to those that they would not know. And I'll tell you this, the church that will hold their money to their city and to their community and their local context is a church that will never move out toward global missions. All right. I'll tell you guys right now, I see church after church. They're in the metropolitan cities, churches that you guys will likely attend and look at as you eventually leave our place and step into churches in metropolitan cities. They are all about their local context and their local community. There is a huge glut of financial resources in the cities and these churches, and they are unwilling to move to the nations with those resources, all right? Why? 
Why not move to the nations? The reason really is this, uh, and it's, it's, I think, far more scathing than they realize, that they do not want to move to the nations because if they move to the nations, it's resources that they let go of that they never have a return investment on, all right? In a sense, global missions is like a church tithe, all right? It is a financial investment that you will never be repaid with. It is a sacrificial gift to the churches that we may never see, that we may never be blessed by, and we go and we invest, all right? Ultimately, I think that what the church at Antioch will do is they will have an accumulation of resources financially that they will have no problem extending to the nations and the needs that are there. To individuals that they may never know and they may never see. The church at Antioch goes even one step for, further with their resources back to Acts chapter 13. Notice what Luke will tell us next. They will respond not just to a natural interruption of a famine, but they will also respond next to a supernatural interruption as God himself comes. Notice Acts 13. And this is why I love this church. Acts 13 verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. There's all kinds of gifted individuals in this church. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. So you have all these gifted individuals in this one local church setting. There's incredible work going on. There's tons of stuff happening, all right? They're ministering left and right. They're fasting. They're praying. All kinds of things are happening. They're having to bring people in from the other cities just to help them manage what's going on because God has moved in such a unique way in this local context, all right? But then a supernatural interruption will happen and notice their response. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. They took the gifted individuals that the Lord had put in their midst and they scattered them out. The scattering that began in 1119 will continue in 13.3. The scattering that was at the very beginning of our passage that we started in 1119 will be bookended at the end of our passage this morning in 13.3. Why does God accumulate resources? Why does God move in unique places in unique times and in unique ways? to uniquely hit that current context and that current city and culture? No. He accumulates in a unique place so as to scatter. That's what God always does. He accumulates in a unique context so as to then scatter and move abroad. And I'll tell you, church after church will talk about being missional. And what they mean is being intentional in their local context. And they've missed completely the call to global missions. And they are not at all resembling the prototype of the church in Antioch. They're, they're heck bent and they're, and they're passionate about their local community, their local conducts and their ministry that's there. Tons of things are happening, but they're unwilling to move to the nations. What do you think the church of Antioch could have said as God said, hey, I want you to send Paul and Barnabas? What could the church of Antioch said? I think it would have been very easy to say, hey, if we send these guys, then what are we going to do about all that's going on right here? You're doing so much right here. How in the world can we manage all that's going on here if we send these guys? These guys have been our leaders. What are we going to do? It would have been so easy for the church of Antioch to say, hey, uh, we got to be concerned with our local context. I mean, look, you're doing so many things here. Why not stay here? And I think time and time again, what we see from Genesis even to Revelation is that God is going to accumulate so as to then scatter. And the temptation for church, for people, time and time again is to stay in the accumulation and to be unwilling to move to the scattering church of Antioch will, will have no problem. They will respond immediately and they'll say, okay. They'll pray and they lay hands and they say, go. God has called you guys go. Incredible, incredible church. Incredibly the prototype for really what you're looking for, for a church that's going to have the kind of impact on the nations. And so here's what I want to say to you guys. I, I think there's no individual and there's no church that is not called to impact the nations. Every church can talk about being missional all they want, but there's not one church and there's not one individual that should not have some role and some stake in what God is doing in the nations. There's not one church, there's not one individual that cannot in some way be involved with what God is doing in the nations. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you've been called to be a witness to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as a church and as a people of God, we don't get to pick one sphere that we want to be concerned with. We have to move to all spheres. We have to be concerned with our current context and our current city. We have to be concerned with the wider region, the wider community, and then ultimately we have to be concerned with the nations. There's no church, as much as they want to talk about being missional, that can get away with the responsibility they have, the stake they have in what's going on in the nations at large. Church in Antioch is the great prototype, but frankly, we don't see these kinds of churches that much anymore. One of the things I'm most proud about our church is that we are missional in that kind of sense of 
people being scattered to the four corners of the earth, all right? As you guys are in here every Sunday morning, even the pictures around our, our walls are pictures of where we go every summer, all right? Uh, and frankly, I think our church is benefited by the fact that every two, three, four, five years, you guys all leave us, all right? And so we never can hold on to things and we can never build our own kingdom. I think for many of the churches that aren't concerned with the nations, they're ultimately, whether they realize it or not, I think their greatest concern is building a name for themselves as a church in their community. You show me a church that does not have a world missions program, and I'll show you a church that is concerned with their name, all right? And ultimately, I think it's not just a church, but it's every individual. If we're going to be here in the accumulation We have to be asking the question, then how do we impact where there is not that kind of accumulation? Every single one of us has to have some kind of role in what's going to go on in the nations. And so we typically say over and over again on these kinds of missions weeks, you should go, you should pray, or you should give, all right? Uh, You should be those that either would willingly go and say, hey, let me me jump on a plane. I will go and I will uh, have an opportunity to impact the nations myself as I walk there. Some of you guys may go, hey, I have an internship this summer. I can't go. And so the opportunity you have is to pray for those that will go or to give toward those that will go. What I want to do as we wrap up this morning is it was whether you guys go, whether you pray, or whether you give. Three great ways that you can be involved in the nations, whether you go and take off and be scattered or whether you stay. I want to give you guys a few quick principles or values that I think should inform and structure the way that you get involved in this great giant task and calling, all right? And so if you're going to go or if you're going to pray or if you're going to give, how ought you to do that? Because your time is limited. You can't go everywhere. Your money is definitely limited right now. (laughs) You can't give to much, all right? And even your prayer life is limited, all right? You can't pray for everything. So what do you pray for? What do you give toward? And if you're going to go, what kind of opportunities should you look for, all right? And so I'm going to give you guys, in a sense, seven quick items that I think are absolutely strategic as you think about this task of, uh, hey, what should I look for? How should I get involved, all right? First is this, prioritize the unreached, all right? As you think about where you may go, as you think about how you may get involved by praying or giving, I'd say put your dollars, put your prayer, and put your time if you go on the unreached, all right? Again, over and over again, let me say, God accumulates so that he can then scatter, all right? And part of the point of the accumulation, I think God continues to do something absolutely significant here in College Station that we as one of the many churches in this place get to be a part of. But I keep my eye on the ball because of this. God's blessing will depart if we do not continue to keep our eye on the nations. The reason why he's accumulated and continued to do so many amazing things here for more than 10 years, because I think this place, this little podunk town, has an opportunity to impact the nations at large. Whether you guys go as missionaries to the nations or whether you guys go into different industries or different workplaces, you guys are all, in a sense, on a launching pad and taking off. So it keeps our eyes on the fact that, hey, our goal, our desire, our vision is to see you guys take the gospel and to move out in whatever vocation, whatever industry, whatever location. And no matter where you go, I'd say, hey, prioritize the unreached. And so if you stay in the place of the accumulation, be thinking, hey, how do I impact the unreached? If you're going to go, I'd say go to where there is not the quiet accumulation of resources, all right? There are countries that are still unreached. There are people groups that have yet to hear the gospel, yet to get a Bible translated, yet to be impacted with a person to come and say, hey, here's Jesus. So go where there's not such an accumulation. Be scattered to the four corners of the earth where there are people who are unreached, all right? And don't stay in the accumulation. I went to a seminary in Dallas and I was amazed even when I graduated that 70% of those that graduated from my seminary stayed in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. That is an atrocity, to stay in the accumulation. And if you're going to stay in the accumulation, again, let me say, you need to have your eyes to the nations. I'll tell you guys, Marcy and I got to spend a couple years in East Asia, some of the most transformative years of our life, all right? And as we considered, hey, would, where would God have us next and where would God have us in the long term of our life and our ministry? I'll tell you guys, uh, in thinking about coming back to College Station, I had a lot of guilt that I had to wrestle with. God is doing so many amazing things here. Why be here? Why be here in the accumulation? Why come and take a job that 10, 20, 30 other people would love to have? And ultimately what we came away with and where we landed and where I, why I felt such a conviction to be in this place is the same thing that Chris McGuffey said last week as he was here speaking is this. From this place, there's an opportunity to impact the nations unlike any other place. And the only willingness I had to come back to this place is if we could have an opportunity and a role to impact the nations. Let me say wherever you go, Wherever God would call you, go to a place where you have a chance to be at a launching pad to impact the nations. If you're going to go work in Houston, that's great. That may be the God's call in your life to be in an engineering job at a desk in Houston, Texas, all right? The question is, how can that job and how can your life in Houston, Texas impact the nations? Don't buy into the idea of being missional only in my local context. That is a myth. That is not what the church is allowed to do. 
So whatever church you step into, whatever opportunity and vocation you'll step into, think through how can I impact the nations and prioritize the unreached, all right? Second thing I say is this, stay gospel-centric, all right? Uh, don't just prioritize the, the unreached, but stay gospel-centric. So as you think about a missions agency you may go with, as you think about a missions agency that you may support or a missionary that you may pray for, let me say this, stay gospel-centric. What I mean is there are agencies all over the place that are wanting to dig wells, wanting to purify water, wanting to provide electricity, and wanting to provide good health care. And some of you guys may have real bent passions around that, and that is fantastic, unless it's not at all paired with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you provide clean water and you do not provide the gospel, you've just made earth a more comfortable place for which people can be damned to hell for all of eternity. All right? Stay gospel-centric. If you're going to dig wells, if you're going to provide clean water, if you're going to provide electricity, be sure that the gospel is paired with it. And so as you're talking to missions agencies, ask them, hey, I understand what you're doing. I understand how this would really relate to my skills and my degree and my background and my passions, but how does this fit with the gospel? How do we bring clean water and the gospel to individuals? Because without, one without the other is not good. Clean water may provide a platform of which they can hear the gospel and be impacted. And if they don't have clean water, they may not be able to hear the gospel, but they have to be paired together. So stay gospel-centric as you look at opportunities to go, as you look at opportunities to stay and pray or give, right? Thirdly, think long-term. I think there's a lot of opportunities to jump off on something that just sounds exciting, but before you go, think about what happens after you leave. Before you jump on a plane, before you sign up for something, think about what happens when you leave. Don't think short-term, think long-term, even in a short-term trip. And so if your short-term trip isn't going to link up to something that's going to have a longer impact, don't go. The greatest impact that you will have in your short-term trip, even with the money that's been raised for that, is if that short-term trip will lead into something longer in which men and women are not just getting to hear the gospel. And if they come to Christ, the question is, what happens when you leave? Will they be established in their faith? Will they be raised up to be disciple-makers? And will they then be challenged to extend their resources? Think long-term, even as you go short-term. If the short-term opportunity doesn't link up to something long-term, find another short-term opportunity. If you're talking to missions agencies, no matter what it is that they may be wanting to do, ask them, hey, how does this hook up? What happens after I leave? And so before you go, think first about your departure, what happens when you leave, all right? Fourthly, let me say build the church, all right? What I mean by this is there are tons of missions agencies and parachurch organizations that have come alongside the church to help us do what we cannot do on our own, and they are a wonderful blessing. In fact, for us, we, we partner with one particular missions organization, so they help us do what we cannot do on our own. And it's a wonderful uh, partnership both here locally and primarily internationally. They help us go internationally in ways that we could not do just by ourselves. And so it's a wonderful opportunity. The question will be, as you think about opportunities to go, and you look at parachurch ministries, some of those, I will tell you, become very much, can get tunnel vision, and they may only want to reduplicate themselves had an opportunity to talk with one missions agency that did a study of all those that had graduated from their ministry and looked at them five years down the road. And what they found five years down the road from this parachurch missions organization is that only 10% of them were still walking with Jesus Christ. Why? I'd say that I think one of the primary reasons, and they realize as well, is that when a missions agency produces a ministry that doesn't eventually link up with the local church, those that are in the ministry will struggle to continue to walk with the Lord after that ministry and after that life stage, all right? Some of you guys may be in organizations here on campus that are great Christian organizations that may show you what it looks like to walk with Jesus in college. But let me plead with you as a senior, once you hit your senior year, you need to get involved in the local church so that you can see those that are walking with Jesus even after college because your chance and your vision of what it looks like to walk with Jesus in a workplace setting or as a family, as a husband or wife, will really be determined by your exposure to those that are in that life stage and the church provides that. So as you talk to missions agency, as you talk to a parachurch ministry, ask them, hey, how does this opportunity, how does this missions investment eventually link back up to the local church? If it doesn't link back up to the local church, then find another because it is not the most strategic one. All right. Uh, Fifthly, value team life. All right. Uh, There are a lot of organizations that will just send you and send you out as a lone ranger into the forest and hope you do well. All right. Pat you on the butt and say, good luck, all right? Let me say, value, choose an organization. I can't believe I just said that, but I did. All right, uh, choose an organization, though, that will, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, will, that, will, uh, that will value team life, all right? That will say, hey, uh, we're concerned not just with where you can get and where you can get on your own, but we're concerned that as you go there, that you're going to be in a community of men and women that will encourage you and that the long-term vitality of your life as you go or the organization and its ministry will be determined by team, all right? 
So look for team, look for organizations that will value team that will not just send you out just so they can get somewhere. All right. Some will do that. Look for those that value team. Lastly, let me uh, end with, I think the hardest one for some of you guys. And let me just say, I think you need to let support free you up. All right. I think for many, as they think about potentially going on a missions trip, the greatest obstacle for so many of them is this issue of raising support. All right. Uh, the idea of having to go beg, holy snikes, I don't think so, right? And so a lot of us just immediately go, ah, I think I'll just do an internship or I'll do even summer school to avoid that, all right? And let me say, I think raising support can be one of the most unexpected spiritual blessings in your life. If you're going to have an opportunity to go, do not let support be something that shuts you down. We've never seen someone who would be diligent as they've been trained to raise support and who understood what support looked like not be able to raise support. We've never seen God not be able to raise someone's support that knew why they were, were to raise support and had train, training and coaching around them to raise support. Never seen it happen, ever, in the 10 years and 12 years that I've been a part of college missions here at Grace Bible. All right, never seen that. So don't let that be the obstacle that shuts you down. In fact, let me kind of flip it around and say, when you understand what support is, it can be a wonderful way to partner with others in the, in the opportunity that you may have as you look at going. I will tell you right now, those that I support financially are those that I pray for the most, all right? Uh, those that I'm cutting a check for that I know are taking the gospel to places that I can't get to right now are those that I'm the most passionate, the most consistent to pray for. And so as you look at a missions opportunity, as you look at the challenge of raising support, let me say this, that you are giving others an opportunity to be involved in a trip that they cannot be a part of. You're giving others to be involved in the ministry in a place that they cannot jump on a plane and go to because of job commitments or family commitments. And you're giving them an opportunity to be on the ground and be a part of that. Support is a wonderful opportunity to involve others in that. It's also a wonderful opportunity to exalt and stretch your faith as you see God do what you can never expect or sometimes even imagine. And then lastly, let me say this. I think there's some of you guys who have, who have thought about this mission thing, have even been on trips and are thinking about a bivocational kind of missions opportunity. I think some of y'all are thinking of that because you're afraid of raising support. <laughs> I don't want to be absolutely dependent on others. I don't want to have to go beg, and so I'm going to have a job. I'm going to have some kind of platform so that I don't have to raise support, and I can enter into a country. Uh, ultimately, I'd say a couple things. One, we see the model in the, throughout the scriptures in Paul's life. There are times where he was a tent maker. He had a task and a job that provided for him. And then there are times where he did not use that task, and he just fully raised support on what the church has provided him. So the idea of a bivocational thing is a biblical model. The idea of a full support raised missionary, also a biblical model. All right? And so neither are unbiblical. Uh, one of them particularly is difficult for us as we think about our faith and we think about having to come to people and ask for money. All right? But let me kind of give one other thing. I think for some of you guys who are thinking about, hey, I'd love to go do this uh, industry or this tent-making task alongside of a missions opportunity in a missions context, do not be naive. All right. I do think some of those kinds of joint missions uh, opportunities in ministries are some of the most impactful because it gives you a practical way to inform, to bless the culture, but also to bring the gospel. And that kind of hand-in-hand kind of thing is incredibly strategic, incredibly impactful. But one of the things I do want to say to you guys, as you look at those agencies or those opportunities, be careful and ask the question of how much space will there be for actual relational ministry? All right. I think some of us jump into those kinds of opportunities, but we need to not be naive about how much space we'll actually have to do missions or to do ministry, to actually have spiritual conversations, to share our faith, to disciple those. And then sometimes we can be so ingrained with an industry or a job, we may not have any space whatsoever to actually be a part of the ministry that we went there for to begin with. All right. So really, as you look at support and as you look at the options that are there, I'd love to challenge you, hey, uh, in terms of, is it a faith that you would move towards that or is it a fear that you'd pull back from that? And then even as you're thinking about, hey, different kinds of opportunities that are bivocational, really wrestling with, hey, what kind of balance is there between uh, the relational ministry component and the actual task or the tent-making component that might lower the support you've got to raise? Really wrestle with that balance, wondering, hey, is there kind of space that I want to do the kind of ministry that I want alongside of this tent-making task, all right? So that's kind of, I think, six or seven really practical uh, tracks to run on as you think about whether you're going to go or whether you're going to pray or whether you're going to give. Your time is limited, your money is limited, uh, your prayer life is limited. And so as you think about praying or going or or, uh, giving, really give and pray and go along those kinds of lines, all right? That's my heartbeat for you guys. And as I think about us as a church, uh, you guys as individuals, there's no individual, there's no church that's not a part of and called to the task of taking the gospel, not just to our Jerusalem, our own city, not just to our Judea and Samaria, our greater region, but to the, ultimately to the ends of the earth. 
There's no church. There's no individual. It's not a call to be a part of that. And the question is, how will you get involved? All right. We're going to end this morning really as you guys would have an opportunity, as you guys would have a desire, we'd love for you, some of you guys to stay. We're going to have a pizza lunch and we're going to talk a little bit more about the three summer trips that we offer to the three, to three different locations in the world. One is East Asia. We go to a place in East Asia, giant people group, uh, giant receptivity of the gospel. We also go to a place in Greece, uh, a smaller town with a lake, mountain, and feta flowing freely, all right? It's amazing, all right? Uh, but also, a place that we're seeing uh, Greeks coming to know the gospel, coming to really be responsive to the gospel. And then lastly, we go to a place, uh, a Mediterranean part of the world with the Muslims, and we're seeing God beginning to break the hard ground and doing some things we've never seen him do there ever before. It's exciting times in each of these three places. And so as you guys would have a heartbeat to potentially consider going, or as you guys would love to know more, even to know how to pray, we'd love for you guys to stay with us. We're going to have pizza for you guys, and we're going to break here in just a minute. Love for you guys to be a part of that time. And so let me pray for us since we're a little late. Father God, I give you great thanks that you've allowed us the incredible opportunity to be involved in such a great task and a great calling. Father, I thank you that we see a church in Antioch that is so influential in this task, so transformative in being able to move and to impact the nations to extend their resources, to extend their time, to extend their money, to extend their people to places where uh, you are dying to beginning to work and working in ways that you're just dying for people to come and to be a part of and to catch up to what you are doing. Father, I pray for these students. I pray that you begin to sort, help them sort through, uh, no matter where they're headed this summer, no matter whatever industry, vocation, or city they may be living in, even this summer or after college, Lord, I pray that you begin to sharpen their vision for how their jobs, their vocations, their cities can have an impact on the nations. Father, I pray that you give us really clear insight, really clear challenge, Lord. Um, maybe not necessarily to completely radically overturn our agendas or our plans, but Lord, I pray that you'd step into those things and allow us not to give lip service to being missional and just staying in our local context and not thinking at all about the world. But I pray that you'd show us what truly missional looks like and that we would look at our lives as we are in one current context asking you the question, how can we involve in a national universal context as you move your gospel? from our current cities to a wider region and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Father, I ask that you'd allow our church and our students and uh, us as individuals to all look at that and wrestle with that. And I pray that your spirit would lead us and speak to us in power and in truth, Father. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for letting us go a little bit longer. We'll have pizza in the back for you guys. Love for y'all to stay. If not, we'll see you guys after Thanksgiving on the December 2nd. All right, see you guys.